Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Twenty years ago, a UK Labour government led by Prime Minister Tony Blair introduced anti-terror laws that in time would expand the British security state. An array of terrorism legislation that came as a result has impacted the Muslim community and refashioned our relationship with institutions of government and the way we are perceived by wider society. The language of terror aimed at sedating the Muslim community has led to self-censorship and community anxiety. It has also made us question one another and undermined our openness and warmth as a community that prides itself on good relations and communal practice. Today it is not uncommon to find Muslims in Britain speaking in hushed tones, showing two faces as if to return to a bygone era of deference that our forefathers adopted to survive colonialism. My guest today, Mu'azzam Beg, is a brother that took a stand and through his public engagements, gives hope to believers uncompromised by state patronage. Mu'azzam first became a household name when he was unjustly incarcerated in Guantanamo Bay and after three years where he witnessed torture and mistreatment in the name of the war on terror, Beg returned to the UK exonerated and determined to shine a light on the excesses of Western states that openly profess human rights but privately act like lawless regimes. Mu'azzam Beg is a campaigner for Cage UK, an organisation often vilified by government and the media. I start by asking him why he is marking this 20-year anniversary and what it means for the Muslim community. Uh, yes, uh, for having me on and uh, to ask me these questions. The, of the 2000 Act is important because it actually begins before the war on terrorism. And just so that uh, listeners are aware, that this had more to do with... Um, the remnants of laws that were dealing with uh, 
a political violence from the Irish Republicans and uh, having come out of the um, Northern Ireland Good Friday Agreement, where there was peace with the IRA. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it gave the government uh, uh, very strong powers, um, powers to uh, ban proscribed organizations from this point onwards, then you would have proscribed organizations, which is something we hear quite often now. You had the banning of people going to training camps, you had the banning of people, you had the ability for the government to stop and search, which is an important one under these terrorism laws, uh, under this Terrorism Act uh, 2000. Uh, so there were all these different provisions um, uh, which gave the Secretary of State extra powers, gave the police extra powers, and uh, it was because the, the, the laws that were used against the IRA were pretty archaic in comparison. There were 19, laws from the 1970s. Uh, and an important one, though it's slightly off topic, um, is that it still allowed in Northern Ireland for the continuance of non-jury trials for terror-related offences. So to, to this day, you have non-jury trials taking place in Northern Ireland in the name of fighting terrorism. But, but 2000 was, I mean, this was a year after the Good Friday Agreement. And from a, from a Northern Irish perspective, if anything, things were uh, winding down in terms of terrorism. Uh, what, what else was going on locally and internationally for, for the government to, to do that? So if you, you may recall, in 1998, that was uh, the Good Friday Agreement happened then, but also mm. there was a bombing that took place in 98, which killed 28 people in the city of Omar. And that was a significant bombing by a dissident Republican uh, uh, group, which did not agree with the peace process because they said they were been fighting all of this long to get British the British out and to have a united Ireland. And that uh, was not the, the political objective of, of the uh, of their cause. And interestingly, also in the 2000 Act, what you'll find is that the the the, the definitions of terrorism also changed. So the ex it was expanded. And it wasn't just violence for the use of political ends. It also added that it is for political, religious or ideological causes. And that's important because that then shifted, uh, especially with the word, with the use of the word religious, uh, moving from um, what was happening in Northern Ireland to what then happened um, in what we know to, now to be the war on terror and the use of religious and ideological goals became the definition of terrorism. So I suppose what, what I'm trying to get to is, is did the Blair government at the time have an eye on Muslims and have an eye on what they call Islamic or Islamist terrorism or, you know, or, um, uh, you know, global jihadism or, or something like that? You know, did they, did they purposefully uh, develop this act or coin this act on the basis of what they saw as potential risks coming from uh, the Muslim world? Yeah, so they've always connected uh, terrorism to the Muslim world uh, in, in the 70s and the 80s was to do with more to do with nationalistic rather than uh, religious movements like the PLO and the PFLP and the Population uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and other, other sort of left-wing uh, groups. Uh, interestingly, when there was a, a bombing that took place in Omar in 1996 in America um, uh, by a guy called uh, um, Timothy McVeigh, he, he destroyed the building in Oklahoma, uh, newspaper headlines at that time led with in the name of Islam before they quickly found out that it was actually a, um, an American um, far-right nationalist who, who did this. So there was this sense. Uh, the in 1993, there was a bombing that took place. They tried to, some people tried to blow up one of the, the, the later Twin Towers. Uh, so there was always a sense of threat from uh, political violence uh, uh, that came from Muslims connected to Palestine, connected to other things. And there was, of course, there was a threat they had from Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda who'd issued uh, statements against um, um, the West 
the bombings had taken place in Khobar, in Dammam, in Saudi Arabia, in Nairobi, in Tanzania. So there was a sense that they, they, they were worried about something, there's no doubt. But um, was it specifically targeted to the, towards Muslims? If it was, um, it's interesting because uh, the Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000 went on to become one of the most oppressive laws uh, for Muslims and the most widely applied um, across the community to this day. Uh, we can talk about the numbers, but uh, uh, you know, one report by, by uh, Cambridge University says that 88% of people stopped at under Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act um, at one airport in 2016 were, were Muslims, which is shocking because we're about 4% of the entire population. Brother Marzam, I want to ask you about these terrorism laws and, and what were the most egregious aspects of these laws. But before I do so, as you mentioned Schedule 7, um, tell us a bit more about Schedule 7 and why you believe it has had such a malign impact on the Muslim community. Uh, well, Schedule 7, of course, I mean, interesting, this is this is pre-9-11. So if anybody thought that this was as a result of 9-11, of it's not true. Um, and it is, of course, uh, applied far more uh, after the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but it, it, interestingly, um, this law initially allowed for the detention of um, anybody at uh, ports of entry and exit in this country um, for up to um, 11 hours. It was changed in a ruling afterwards uh, a few years ago to, to, I think, six hours. But you could essentially be held under no suspicion. So there is no requirement to believe that you are suspected of a crime by the police for them to stop you. So this is essentially, they can stop and search you. Not only can they stop and search you, they, they, can, uh, they, they, take, they can take your photograph, your fingerprints, your DNA, search you, strip search you, take your med uh, um, uh, electronic devices, ask for, and you must supply passwords and passcodes for those devices. And if you fail to comply with any of those uh, things, you can uh, be arrested and prosecuted and convicted as a terrorist. Now, interestingly, you could have not complied, you could have not given, not wanted to um, give your passwords of your, of, for your phone, for example, because there are pictures of there that are private of your family and so forth. And you refuse to do that. Now, because you refuse to do that, you are a terrorist. And this is the shocking part about this, because remember the definition, we said that the expansion of the definition of terrorism included political, religious, and ideological causes with the use of violence. Well, where's any of that and where's violence in any of this when you simply refuse to give your password? Um, and, and that's the part. So when you say you're uh, designated a terrorist, if you refuse to hand over your password, how, how does that happen? How are you designated a terrorist? Um, essentially, so you're arrested under that same law, under Schedule 7, and there's another law that allows for you to be uh, um, um, uh, prosecuted, essentially, for refusing to give that um, uh, that information and it is under the terrorism laws so you know for example there's a colleague of mine Mohammed Rabbani who, who uh, from Cage refused to give passwords to his um, uh, devices because he had sensitive information about a torture survivor who'd given him testimony about what had happened to him in US custody and uh, we were seeking justice for him uh, taking those files and information to the courts ourselves um, the police stopped my colleague asked for the passcodes for his uh, devices, which contained these documents. He refused because, on the basis of um, um, uh, privileged uh, client uh, information, and they arrested him and then prosecuted him, took him to court and convicted him. Um, and he's, he was technically at that point a convicted terrorist, though there was 
no acts of terrorism taking place. So this is the lunacy, the ludicrous nature of uh, just one of the many terrorism laws that we have in this country. I understand uh, Brother Rabani, he, he took uh, the his case, his judgment to judicial review. Uh, yes. What was the outcome of that? Uh, in the end, uh, we've, the, the whole sort of point of it was that the, it, it was the law. Mm. What the judge said, what was done and what was the, is that I, the judge, I was there when the judgment happened. Um, and she said that, look, this seems very unethical. This seems wrong. I, I don't, it's not that I want to, to convict you for this, but I have no choice. This is the law. And the law says that you didn't, you, you didn't comply with it. Uh, therefore you broke the law. Therefore, and so it's, it was not much, what's needed is a change of this law. This law must be changed. You can't overturn this kind of uh, decision because the law's on the side of the police. I mean, if you don't mind me saying, uh, your organisation is uh, seen by the government and the press as, a, as extremely problematic. And, and of course, the, uh, the police would, uh, would hold your members under some level of suspicion, incorrectly, of course. Uh, but how has this law affected the wider Muslim community generally? Well, no, I mean, I'd even challenge that, that if the police are concerned with anything we do, uh, then they have the uh, apparatus that have more laws than any other uh, any other uh, country in the world when it comes to terrorism. Um, they can approach us. Uh, what you can't do and you shouldn't do is essentially say that a person, and this is, applies to everyone, to a second part of your question, is that anybody, and it has happened, as I said to you, um, I think this record show that more than half a million people have been stopped under Schedule 7. And um, uh, as I said, disproportionately, I think you're 42, 42 times more likely to be stopped if you look Asian. Um, and certainly if you're believed to be a Muslim, whatever that looks like. And uh, as I said, 88% of those stopped in one airport alone um, were Muslims. Now, uh, Mohammed Rabbani refuses in this instance to cooperate with them because of something that is that anybody else, if it was a lawyer, if it was a human rights worker, if it was a journalist, um, that they, uh, it's privileged information. The police have no right to look at that information, especially when we're saying that the British government um, has actually colluded with the United States of America in those very torture cases. Um, we've sat with and spoken to the Intelligence Security Committee and given them evidence of Britain's own role in torture and how they cooperated with the Americans in torturing individuals and using information uh, that was extracted from torture to justify the war in Iraq. I mean, this is massive stuff. Um, so, so for them to look at our information to try, try to preempt what legal actions we're going to take is highly, highly unethical. And, and with regards to Schedule 7 and its input, I mean, you, the figures you cite there are, are extraordinary. Um, what, what is the intention behind that? I mean, surely those, those uh, 88% of those who were uh, detained at, the, at one particular airport who, who were Muslims, and I can't imagine the border police would have found uh, due cause to, uh, to detain them on real terrorism grounds. So what else is going on there? Why detain such a large number? Well, yes. So uh, I forget the exact figures, but I think in one of the years in 2019, uh, around when the, out of about 30,000 30, odd stops, there were about um, 30 odd arrests. Out of those 30 odd arrests, there were five convictions. Out of those five convictions for terrorism, uh, we don't know the detail of the other cases, but we know that one of them was my, uh, my colleague, uh, Muhammad Rabbani, meaning that you, you, this is you are 
convicted for not complying with the law, not because uh, you have actually done anything. You, there was no suspicion. And this is the point I wanted to make. Imagine if, if uh, in, uh, out in the street, somebody carries out a murder, a mass murder, an act of terrorism, in fact, and they go and report it to the police that have killed an X number of people. The police are required to arrest them and say, um, you have the right to remain silent. And anything you say and do can be used in a court of law against you. Under Schedule 7, you're not accused of having committed any crime at all, but you must answer every single question and you have absolutely no right to remain silent. That's the irony of this ludicrous So, so the odds are, are quite uh, unfavorable in, in terms of, you know, so many people are scooped up under Schedule 7, yet, you know, in, in this one instance, there's only five actual convictions that come out of it. Even those convictions are dubious, as you've, as you've quite rightly said. And, and by the way, we, we don't know. There's nothing to say that those convictions are terrorism convictions. The only one I know for sure it was Mohammed Rabani for not giving his, his password. But the others, we don't know that they're terrorism convictions. And, ha, you know, ha, how do, would we know? I mean, this law is completely, it's not, it's not a law that's fit for purpose. It's not stopping anything. There's no evidence, no figures, statistics, details to say that they've even stopped one terrorism plot. Um, but what they have done is alienate the entire Muslim population because half a million stopped under this law. Um, not all of whom are Muslim, of course, but uh, we we believe that disproportionately they have been targeted. Well, that's really my, my question. So why would the uh, police, and it, by extension the government, why would they persist on, on having a law which would alienate uh, the Muslim community, uh, which doesn't really achieve very much in terms of actual terrorism charges, right? It, it, it doesn't seem to be very effective. Why, why alienate the community and why, why scoop up so many members uh, when it procures so little results? Well, if, if, if this was just the one law and we said that they failed in this but succeeded in the others, then we could uh, talk about Schedule 7 in and of itself. But the problem is, uh, is that the entirety of British anti-terrorism legislation uh, for the past two decades has not been fit for purpose. How many laws, how many uh, terrorism acts have they stopped? Uh, how many actual uh, physically violent prisoners have they convicted for terrorism? Um, again, the numbers are, are, are shocking because the overwhelming majority of those convictions have nothing to do with physical violence or even preparing physical violence. Uh, most of it is to do with thought crime, possession of documents, um, traveling to some place, intending to traveling to some place, intending to travel to a place but not actually going there. Uh, all of these uh, and many more uh, control orders, which we can talk about later, um, uh, the use of secret evidence, uh, the use of um, new legislation that targets people based just upon where they uh, intend to travel to. I mean, if you look at the entirety of British anti-terror legislation, it is totally counterproductive. Um, what it does is to, to uh, pander to a populist um, media press who want something to be done but they're not prepared to look at the reasons why some of this is happening. And they're certainly not prepared to look at um, how these laws actually um, are a cause of, let's call it um, negative radicalization rather than um, fixing any problems we see. Well, let's then look at uh, the anti-terror laws that were introduced after 2000. What do you see to be the most objectionable of these laws? I'd say all of them, but um, <laughs> for me, for me personally, there, there was one that happened that most people don't even know about and fewer people even care about. And that is in, in 2001, uh, not long after the 9-11 attacks in, in, in America, 
in I believe October, in October it was passed as it was presented as a, as a white paper and by November it was passed as law, emergency terrorism law. Now what was this? It allowed for the detention, uh, listen to this clear, carefully, it allowed for the detention of people without charge or trial in Britain, not Guantanamo, not Burma, not China, but in Britain. So people were held and they were Middle Eastern, North African men, 16, uh, 15 or 16 of them were held in high security Belmarsh prison as category A prisoners for three years in Britain, the land of Magna Carta, the land of uh, um, uh, habeas corpus, the land of laws and rights held without charge or trial in Belmarsh. They were released in 2005 after the House of uh, Lords ruled that their detention had been illegal. Their detention had been illegal and unconstitutional. Imagine that, and the executive power um, that had been passed, rushed through through Parliament, uh, they could be detained, people could be detained for years, three years, for as long as I was held in Guantanamo, and there was no recourse to justice. And so to me, uh, Britain cannot talk about uh, uh, rules and belief in the rule of law. The rule of law, if it's if the the overriding rule of rule of law is that it, that we believe Magna Carta is that most important British institution, which says to no man shall justice be delayed or denied, and that they will not be held except that they will be judged by a court of their peers. How is it possible that Britain can hold people without charge or trial, and then lecture the rest of the world about human rights? Let's turn to the Labour government. Uh, at the very beginning, ninety-seven, the Blair government introduced uh, quite libertarian acts, for example, the Human Rights Act, which brought into practice, if not into law, uh, a, a pseudo Bill of Rights. Um, yeah, it's the same government that's now introducing this these raft of of very draconian anti-terror laws. So, what's going on there? How can we have a government uh, on the one hand that's the saviour of rights, but on the other hand, is is severely um, implementing laws which uh, infringe on 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 our basic rights. Well, you know, again, it, it becomes in the name of fighting terrorism, but it always—I mean, it's—it starts off as that. But let's let's be clear. We spoke about the two thousand act becoming coming as a result of the, the things kind of winding down a little bit in in Northern Ireland, but the fear of dissident groups. Um, but if you look at the numbers of people killed during that conflict, 3,000. I mean, they hit, they killed Lord Mountbatten, the Queen's uh, nephew or cousin, in a bomb. They, they hit 10 Downing Street almost with an with a, uh, improvised rocket. They hit the MI5 building. They killed, bombed right across Harrods and Guildford and every place you can think of, Birmingham. 3,000 people killed. They make Al-Qaeda look relatively tame. Um, and yet, as I said to you, they didn't have laws. They were using laws from the 1970s to prosecute Irish Republican terrorism. Yet in the space of two decades here, though we've had, I think, the total killed, mercifully, I mean, if you want to call it whatever you want to call it, um, in, throughout terrorism connected to Muslims in this country, doesn't exceed 60 people. Um, so, uh, sorry, if you would add Manchester attack. Okay, it doesn't exceed about 90 people. Um, and compare that to, to 3,000. The figures just don't make sense. Why do you have more laws when there is less of a physical threat? And we're, the whole thing is packaged to say, no, the threat is far greater um, from Muslims connected to political violence ever than they were 
uh, from Irish Republican terrorism, which simply the facts, uh, it's, it's untrue. It's totally untrue. So you can only then come to one conclusion. There is Islamophobia and racism absolutely crystal clear, not just at um, street level, but in fact at state level, uh, even at legislation level. I want to come back to, to that analysis you've, you've, or that conclusion you've just made about Islamophobia and racism and, and how deep that is. But before we, we do so, maybe it's worth uh, uh, considering some of the other laws that were introduced. So, uh, for example, after the, uh, after the Belmarsh case and the overturning of, of that provision in the Terrorism Act, which allowed them to lock up uh, foreign terrorist suspects without charge, the government then introduced, to, to comply with the law, uh, introduced control orders. Can, can you talk us through the control order scheme and why that was probably even more problematic than the original law? Yeah, so most people, when they call them control orders, it sounds a little bit more, it was just controlling somebody. I mean, uh, but the, the reality is that it is house arrest. It is the, the, the essence of house arrest. And again, you associate house arrest with maybe Burma, but not Britain. Um, again, uh, how, how did they come to the conclusions in, that they do in control orders? Well, first of all, control orders were essentially these government um, orders issued by the Home Secretary on individuals who were suspected of having uh, relations connected to terrorist groups. Now, how do they come to that conclusion? The use of the Special Immigrations and Appeals Commissions, uh, through which secret evidence that was often provided by countries like Algeria, Libya, Jordan, um, and, and others, who are known to and often do practice torture in order to in obtain information. That information was sent over to the British uh, government and the CIA and to, to sorry, uh, uh, intelligence and was actually used in the courts. Now, because this was closed material, the client, the accused person couldn't get to see it. Neither could their lawyers. They had a special advocate uh, appointed by the government who could see that information, but, um, you as the person accused and subjected to these control orders had no right to see it. You couldn't see it. You couldn't challenge. How can you challenge what you can't see? Uh, and neither could the lawyers. The other matter was, of course, what were the control orders? Control orders were essentially a person had to stay within a fixed address, couldn't move, couldn't go out outside a certain radius sometimes, sometimes uh, no more than a mile. Sometimes they couldn't even go into their own back garden. Um, they couldn't make phone calls without them being first checked and agreed by the home office. They couldn't have visitors to their homes, including to the children who wanted friends coming over. All of them had to be cleared by the home office. And who would like to get clearance from the home office to go and visit a terrorism suspect? Um, they couldn't have internet in their homes. They had to wear a tag, an electronic tag, uh, and they had to sign at police stations. And these were just some of the conditions. And bear in mind that all of these individuals were not even charged with a crime. Some of these individuals had actually been released as a result of the 2005 Supreme Court ruling, House of Lords ruling, which said that their detention had been illegal. So then to circumvent that, uh, the government tried to, um, after the July 7th uh, bombings, though these individuals had the greatest alibi um, of having nothing to do with it because they were in prison at the time, um, uh, implemented these, these measures. And of course, they became very, very uh, uh, corrosive and intrusive on people's lives, and some people became suicidal. Others, like uh, our colleague Kerry, Kerry Bullivant, who some brothers, some of you may have heard of, absconded. And in the end, the judge ruled in his favor to say that what had happened to him was terrible. It was uh, 
it, it was um, destructive about his family life. And in the end, it was found that he was put on a control order because a drunken uncle phoned uh, the police and said that I think he's involved in terrorism. That's all it was. And it, that evidence remained secret for years until it came out in court that that was the reason behind it. And he was exonerated totally. But that was just one of scores of cases. And in other situations, people were internally exiled. And that meant that you could have lived in Birmingham or London for all of your uh, entire life or however long you lived there. And then at the uh, stroke of a pen, you're sent off to some uh, obscure town in the northeast uh, of, of the country uh, to live completely isolated from any community that knew you. And these were some of the methods that were being employed. I want to understand the, the control order scheme in, in a little bit more detail, and, and maybe the example of Kerry Bullivant is is a good one. So, did he? Who whose whose decision was it to uh, to put a control order on him? What, you know, what, was it a judge's decision? Was it the Home Secretary's decision, or, or local police constabulary? You know, where did that decision come from? Uh, ultimately, it's the power of the Home Secretary, right. but it's. Um, uh, it's exercised, as it were, through the the SIAC courts, they're known as the Special Immigration and Appeals Commissions. And so the, the, the one that's adjudicating on what the government is doing here is the judge um, of these uh, SIAC courts, as they're known. And again, as I say, uh, to repeat, that they use secret evidence, um, evidence that you cannot see, you cannot challenge it. It's closed uh, evidence that's only presented to a, a special advocate appointed by the government. Yeah, so that's the veneer of um, uh, accountability or, or at least somebody reviewing what's happening. But it's not your law. It's not anybody appointed by you. It's not somebody that's acting in your interest. So as a result of this, you're placed under these deeply destructive and corrosive measures for which essentially you are being punished for something um, that you're not found guilty of. In fact, you're not even been arrested, yet you're required to sign every week, sometimes every day, uh, some had to fight sign two to three times a day at a police station. And as a result, as I said, that there's many people I spoke to at the time who were under these control orders. Even speaking to them was a problem. So we had to get clearance to speak to them in different ways. Uh, and then listen to the sad, sad tales of how their lives and their family lives were being systematically destroyed. And as I said, some became suicidal, um, some absconded. Uh, and eventually a, a ruling was passed. I, I can't remember in the year, but they were changed the control orders regime had to change because they recognized that it was too intrusive and too destructive of family life uh, and so they re they introduced something in 2011 called the terrorism preventative and investigative me measures mm -hmm. which were similar to control orders but a little less stringent um and that was because of this whole issue of um how it destroyed people's lives at the time when the 2011 um changes to the control orders were introduced it was seen that the liberal democrats had a part to play in in diluting or watering down the the control order system i mean the liberal democrats during those blair years were, were i mean i would like to get your view on this but they seem to be the most um the most uh, uh stringent in in arguing the case for um civil liberties at a time when the two big political parties were were happy to pass laws to to um, uh, to, to to further this draconian system. Um, I mean, in 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 your reading of of the politics in this country, do you find that uh, there are some political parties that are more in favour of 
of uh, relaxing some of these terrorism laws and reversing them, as as maybe the Liberal Democrats were. Again, well, I'm not sure what their position is now, but at least publicly, that seemed to be their position back in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I, I met several Liberal Democrat um, MPs at the time. Um, they opposed, uh, wanted to oppose the extradition order, for example, that saw uh, um, many Muslim people like Barbara Ahmed being sent over to the America to America without any reciprocation, um, without any prima facie case. Uh, they also campaigned against Guantanamo. They spoke out against uh, uh, some of the laws and the demonizations. But then they happily walked into hand in hand with um, uh, the coalition government that they made with the with the uh, the conservatives and uh, backtracked pretty much on almost every civil libertarian thing they spoke of, um, including um, the extradition process. So it just, to me, uh, I, I'm not going to place any weight in any political party on this because all of them, let, let's not forget, like you said rightly, uh, the war on terror, uh, the laws on terror as they were, the uh, injustices therein, came under a Labour government mm. and they they uh, carried on under a Labour government even after Blair had gone. And uh, when the Conservatives came, they did pretty much the same thing um, and didn't stop. And so I don't know how much weight I'd put into any political party in some of these issues. Uh, some are good. Some of the MPs and so forth I've met from both sides, by the way, I've sat with... Um, conservative ministers at different points who have spoken out against the various various aspects of Islamophobia, or at least some of the laws that we oppose. Um, but, but it's a very tricky game. And I think that what Muslims need to do in all of this is to find their own space uh, where they can ally with, if necessary, those that um, assist them on, on their issues. But it's not going to be one political party or the other, I don't think. I mean, how effective is that um, approach? Um, we know that it's often the case that if you want to make changes, you, you've got to really, I mean, like it or not, you've got to have some connection with the political institutions and political setup. And I know you, you know, you're not, you've spoken to and you've met with uh, a number of people from from the political party setup, but but it, you know, sometimes we get the impression that Cage's approach is very is very much to work outside the system and to create alternative um, narratives and alternative discourses beyond uh, the political system. I mean, some would argue possibly that that's been uh, a tad naive and, 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 you know, one can't make any changes. I mean, uh, think about the Irish problem. You know, it it really took uh, a number of people to, in particular, gain supporters within the Labour Party before uh, very immediate changes were made to to those laws and the system of repression that existed in Ireland? Well, I mean, I think the Irish situation is different. The Irish situation, it's true, whilst that is true, they, the Irish also had a, had a um, you know, there was a very strong military uh, involvement and not that from both sides, and we're not advocating for that. Um, but the important thing in all of this is um, we're not against people who engage in the system or take part in it. We just are cautious, deeply cautious of it and suspicious of it because of the things I've said, that everybody has their hands involved in this. And it is hard um, unless somebody seeks and says, look, what they did was wrong and we need to find a way forward, which, by the way, on Guantanamo and torture, this is exactly what the, the justice minister said to me, um, Kenneth Clark at the time is that we want to turn a page over and we, want, we don't want to be 
associated with those who have been complicit in torture, i.e. the United States uh, at that point. Um, but in reality, of course, they say one thing, but do another. And I've seen so much of that. It's, it's, we haven't got enough time to list how often I've come across that from um, ministers, from police, from senior players who tell you one thing, but actually do quite a, a different thing. So this, all of this, um, it puts you off. It turns you away. And it makes you want to find a different way. And I think perhaps people might say it's naive. I'd rather be naive than to be played. And I think that a lot of people get played and then turn around and say, oh, my goodness, um, why are they now? Um, how can we sort of stand with these people in this political party when they are now turning against us and our interests? We need to create our own vision and our own um, narrative and whoever wants to accept it, that's fine. If they don't want to accept it, that's fine too. But at least we are, we are uh, we're clear on who we are. I mean, many in the Muslim community who who really don't follow these events on a on a daily basis and, and are not aware of all the laws that have been introduced, and, and some of those laws that you mentioned are, are extremely problematic from any perspective, right? And but but many Muslims, you know, we don't follow these uh, vi- this. But the legislative detail in in mm. in, in such rigor as as you, <laughs> but, but you know, we, we, you know, cages is known to to be a very effective pressure group, and it, and it does its job. It does this job very well. But I suppose the question is, uh, many in the Muslim communities would simultaneously recognize the problems with these laws, even on a general level, mm. but at the same time recognize that the government has to deal with a terror threat. Um, I mean, would that not be an unreasonable position to have? Uh, I'm going to say it again so it's understood. Um, 3,000 deaths versus less than 100. Which is worse? Mm. Obviously, it's the 3,000. How did you deal with the 3,000? You dealt with it uh, not by introducing more legislation. And when you did, when you introduced something like internment, detention without trial, that terrorism got worse and worse. Bloody Sunday happened and the rest, as I say, is history. So the opposite is what happened. They, I, I said again, they didn't pass any new terrorism laws uh, in Northern Ireland other than I think once or, or, or once um, it was a, an emergency provision in 1989 and then maybe another one in in, 80, in 96. It, it wasn't through the passing of legislation that they got the results of a peace agreement and a Good Friday. It was through the results, through the through meaningful dialogue but that dialogue happened with the IRA, and I have to say it clearly, uh, you have a military wing on one side and a political wing on the other side that made the British government come to the negotiating table. What we don't have, afraid, and as I said, I'm not advocating for this, but why should they listen to us? What have we got to say to them that uh, they'll listen to us other than the ballot box? And uh, we are only about 4% of the entire population, so... Uh, whilst we do engage in, uh, engage politically, uh, we are the first ones, our, our, especially our politicians, unfortunately, are the first ones to sell their own communities down the river. For example, I'll give you um, Muslim um, MPs who joined the Labour Party. Now, the Labour Party under Tony Blair, they wanted the extension of detention without trial to six months. That's pre-trial detention. That's before you're even charged with a crime. That's something that used to happen in an apartheid South Africa. Um, so Muslims who engaged in, t- in the, uh, 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 the process, as it were, who became MPs, many of them, in fact, I think almost all of them at that time voted for it, whereas others who had principles said, how can you do this? This is ridiculous. This is, uh, um, this is what a police state would do. 
the argument of we are under a terrorism threat is greater than anything else. Um, simply, I cannot buy it when I, when I put that figure of uh, 90 dead, though it's a terrible figure, is, is nothing near 3,000 dead. Um, so th this, this notion of we are under a terrorism threat constantly simply does not add up. Now, the coalition government uh, had as Justice Secretary Ken Clark, and Ken Clark was seen as being someone who was totally against some of the, the most draconian measures introduced by Tony Blair's government. Ken Clark, uh, however, introduced in 2013 uh, these uh, secret trials, or at least expanded the secret trials beyond the control orders system. And um, under his, his watch, uh, we had uh, a number of cases where... Um, uh, evidence was provided to the court, which uh, uh, the, the the those who were accused, the accused, were not able to see. Um, I mean, why did Ken Clark um, jump from, you know, from this very libertarian stance to again a, a very draconian, you know, almost sort of contradicting some of those principles of of uh, justice that uh, uh, they they talk a lot about. I'll tell you why that was passed. I'll tell you why that law was passed. I remember exactly why it was passed. We, myself and the former Guantanamo prisoners, had a case against the government for complicity in our torture and in our false imprisonment. And what they were doing, whilst they were forced, they, they were forced to negotiate with us and they were forced to come to a settlement. Um, but what happened is that they um, immediately realized that they are forced, the government has been forced to disclose documents uh, through the courts, which showed clearly that they not only knew our torture was taking place, they were actually sending and fielding the questions to the Americans and the CIA. So what they did is to make sure that such cases in future can never be heard. So that's, that was the, the, the kind of introduction, the reintroduction uh, of in our courts, in, in the main courts, not in the special immigration and appeals courts, but in normal British civilian courts, the, the introduction of um, closed secret uh, material. And they did that because they didn't want such cases coming ever again. Now, Marzam, I want to now turn to the Prevents system or Prevents scheme, which was introduced and, and made statutory, I think, in 2015. Uh, if there's a single law which has had a impact, a, a tremendous impact on the Muslim community, it's Prevent because it impacts on young Muslims, but also uh, it uh, creates a an aura of suspicion and, and uh, uh, many Muslims, as a result, uh, feel that they need to self-censor uh, in case their, their children say the wrong thing at school. Uh, can you talk us through the PREVENT system and, and why uh, it's really had such a malign impact? Yeah, so, you know, PREVENT became law in 2015 as a Counter-Terrorism Security Act um, and has made it, a, as you said, a, a legal bounding, binding duty upon schools, colleges, universities, uh, prisons, hospitals, and even nurseries uh, for their staff to be trained. Um, and I don't know what they can get in that two hours of training they receive to uh, recognize and point out individuals that are risk at, that, that appear um, being at risk of getting radicalized and uh, being susceptible to becoming extremists. Now, how do you determine what that extremism is? Extremism is, is? They say that they made lots of mistakes in the beginning, and some of the mistakes were things like, and I kid you not, one of the uh, guidances uh, issued by Tower Hamlets Council for their schools was that if you see a, if a teacher sees a child that is becoming more overtly religious, that is serious about this study, that is um, abandoning 
rowdy friends and is getting better grades, uh, then you need to be concerned about them becoming uh, radicals, becoming radicalized. I kid you not that that was one of the guidances issued uh, to, to schools. Now, things have changed a little bit since that time, but the largest number of people affected by the prevent strategy, and this is why, as you say correctly, it is more of concern to most Muslims than any other law, um, is because the, the majority of those targeted under it are, are children from the ages of three years old all the way to 15, 16 years old. And we've had numerous cases, and anecdotally, there are, there are plenty, but also statistically, it shows that it's the, the, the children are being targeted more than anyone else. You see, you can try to apply prevent on people that are older and at uh, universities, but people can argue back there. They're less afraid. Um, when you have primary school children, the child, it's, child itself gets afraid, and so does the parent. Um, and so you've got a, a double-pronged attack. And what happens is that these children get referred to prevent officers. By whom? By the very people that they have been entrusted uh, with um, for their safekeeping, meaning the, the, the teachers. And it damages and sullies and poisons that relationship between those teachers um, and those, uh, those pupils. And we've spoken to numerous teachers and uh, so forth who refuse to get involved in it. In fact, the National Union of Teachers made a, a, a commitment not to work with Prevent and spoke out against it, added many other groups, the National Union of Students, um, several uh, civil society groups, mosque groups, uh, former police officers, um, even advisors to the government on Prevent. Um, an actual advisor spoke to me and he came out and spoke against Prevent because he said, this is now, this is not about stopping violence on our streets. This is about spying on the community and making it feel internally that it has a problem within itself to, to, from cradle to grave. Um, that this community is connected to extremism, which we refuse to accept. I mean, at the heart of the government's argument is is that it carefully placed um, a, a scheme to stop young people from uh, uh, from turning to uh, to what they call Salafi jihadism. In fact, that was a term they used in 2018 in a review. I think it was Sajid Javid in charge of the Home Office at that time. And and I suppose the argument is that if you can. Uh, if you can get, uh, if you can track someone at an early stage before they become uh, an active uh, extremist or a terrorist or, or whatever the phrase is, um, you can um, you can turn them against a problematic ideology, and and they they argue that it's a, a prejudicial space. You know, you're not uh, you're not engaging and interacting with law enforcement here, and and often the uh, prevent caseworkers will be people from the community. There'll be Muslims who are um, uh, who um, uh, are uh, are well versed in um, in ideology. They would say well versed in Islamic understanding, and, and you know, it's more of a chat rather than anything sinister. And and if if you know the the problem uh, is uh, if the problem isn't there, or if the problem is a, a slight problem, well. You know the government's argument is uh, it's solved at the root rather than allow the problem to uh, to fester and, and and a greater extremism comes from it. I mean, how would you tackle that? Um, by by the effects of what Prevent has done, it's probably it is the single handedly most unpopular um, terrorism law uh, or aspect of terrorism law that has been passed in the country that has received so much 
um, in fact, it, it in fact it is so discredited uh, when anybody says, for example, any Muslim that says that they receive, if they ever, because most of them will never say it, that they receive prevent funding, they know immediately that nobody will take them seriously and everybody will think them of some kind of government informant. That's on the street, uh, whether you talk to people on the streets or whether it's to academics, everybody has the same view. And that is because, as I said, you have former chiefs of police who've spoken out about uh, we don't want to become thought police. Uh, you've had people, uh, as I said, advisors to prevent. The, probably the most damning report is by the United Nations in 2016-17, in which they say, and I quote, that prevent isn't stopping extremism. Prevent could be causing extremism. Imagine that. That's the United Nations statement and a detailed report about the effects of prevent. Um, it is very damning of the government uh, and its approach to counterterrorism through att attempting to, as you said, in this pre-crime space, you know, they, they have, how do they determine a person? And what happens to that person? Even if you say that uh, not every case, and there are prevent officers, are not all police, but many prevent referrals have involved the police, including in the cases of three-year-olds who've mispronounced words, um, including in the case of people who are activists on particularly political things and are Muslim. You know, infamously, there's this case of a young boy who's three years old who pronounces the word uh, uh, cucumber as cucumbum. And he's referred to, the, the teacher thinks he said cookabom. And he's referred to uh, uh, prevent officers and the police do speak to the parents. Now, nothing happens. There's no, nothing goes on of it. But what you need to ask is, what is the residual effect of all of this? And then in what is compounded, we have cases of somebody, of people being approached um, who've been told by uh, prevent officers that uh, terrorism has been caused because of verses in the Quran. We have documented evidence of people uh, having to sit through that kind of a discussion. Um, you're not charged, you're not arrested, nothing's happened, but they, this is the talk they've given to you. And you come as an arm of the state and speak to people who are just ordinary people. Even if you're a prevent officer, you have been employed by, uh, and, uh, by the government. To, to approach these people, people get afraid, they get terrified. And that is the residual effect. And that is, that is one of the reasons why people, ironically, who become quote unquote radicalized, will say, here's another evidence as to why Muslims are made to feel like they don't belong. And I would like your view on the following statistic. Um, and and the, the government produces uh, these yearly reviews. And in 2016, a total of, well, just over shy of 6,000 people were referred to prevent, yet only 332 people received support from the channel. Um, I mean, what do you think is going on here? What, why are the initial referrals so higher, so much higher than those deemed to be of real concern? Uh, such that they receive channel support? Um, I would say fear. Everybody's afraid, including those people who have well, I've been told now that if you, this is now a law, you could potentially, though it's not happened, imagine if you're a teacher or a lecturer or a nursery attendant who um, somebody says, oh, there's a, there's a kid that got radicalized um, under your watch and you didn't report that kid. You could potentially be prosecuted as what? A terrorist. That's what this, this is. This is the ludicrous nature. Imagine, uh, you know, let's just say Brian is a teacher up in uh, um, Hertfordshire somewhere in a, in a middle school in, in, the, in, in, in the country. And a young kid comes along and says X, Y, Z, or they've said, seen a video or something. He should have picked that up. 
he should have reported it to prevent officers. And if he didn't, Brian sitting in Hertfordshire in his, in his little school can be prosecuted as a terrorist. That's, the, that's if you took the, the, this, this law to its natural conclusion and applied it in that way. Uh, people are just afraid. And so they would rather do something than nothing so that they're not um, you know, targeted. But as I said, that there are people like the, in, in, entire institutions like the National Union of Teachers who refused, who condemned prevent and continue to do so and knowing that it is so corrosive on the, on the community. Um, so that's one of the reasons, especially in the early days, why so many people, nobody knew what the law was. Nobody knew under, understood how to apply it. Nobody knew, even if you go through two hours of training that they do, how do you apply that? A kid says, well, you know what? I'm not happy with what's happening in Palestine. I oppose uh, the Israeli government. And I think the Palestinians have the right to, to resist just as much as the British government and the British had the right to resist Nazi occupation had they entered and got into Britain. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But now you are, t t you've been told that that's a sign of radicalization. Um, so this is a major problem. I mean, so to what extent is prevent really a way to police uh, Muslim political thinking, Muslim political thoughts and activism? And to, uh, I mean, I, I note that um, when I was at university, uh, Islamic societies, you know, as well as the uh, the normal work that ISOCs do, they were quite involved in in raising awareness about uh, Palestine and and other Muslim causes. I mean, you find that that's very rarely now the case on on uh, on university campuses, and and uh, there is a there is a feeling that um, if you were to if you were to too openly uh, address some of these issues, you may be caught up in, in this prevent system. So to what extent is it is the unintended or even the intended consequence of prevent to police our political opinions? Well, that's a very good question. In 2015 uh, and 16, I did uh, alongside with CAGE, alongside with other organizations and primarily the National Union of Students, uh, did tours of campuses uh, and under the, under the premise of students, not suspects educators not informants uh, so as part of that we we had a massive support and rallying uh, around students who refused to uh, essentially become part of this and uh, not be seen as suspects and uh, also uh, the university uh, and colleges union also took part in it again uh, educators saying that we don't want to be these these informants um, what the right-wing press did um is to start to call us extremists because we were speaking against prevent, because we were challenging prevent. Um, I was myself and Cage actually become, it was revealed or discovered um, that we were a study. We were actually a study of what, what do you do if Marzenberg and, and Cage are invited to speak at a university? Um, should they be challenged? Should they, um, uh, should they be allowed to speak on campus? What are the, what's the right thing to do? So it's actually a study case for people in prevent training we found. Uh, and again, why are, why, are, why are we seen as, as extremists in that way? What's extreme about challenging prevent? Uh, particularly when, as I said, advisors, former government advisors to prevent spoke out against it. The United Nations spoke out, uh, out against it. Andy Burnham, who was at the time the, uh, and still is the mayor of, of, of uh, Manchester, spoke out against it. Um, the former head of Greater Manchester Police, um, Sir Peter Fahey, as I said, he said that uh, I don't want my police force uh, becoming a, a thought police when he was referring to this. So he had so many senior people speak out against it. Um, 
but they tried to to map it out and to to suggest that because we were speaking against it as Muslims, we must therefore, by definition, be extremist. And that's political opinions. What about normative Islamic ideas? I mean, I came across a a, a review, two thousand and eight review, and in it, it it explained what were objectionable uh, views that could lead to terrorism, and it's and and the views are as follows. Um, an ideology that uh, adheres to an absolute rejection of democracy, personal liberty and human rights, as well as a commitment to restoring a self-proclaimed caliphate and establishing a brutal and literalist interpretation of Sharia law. Uh, And then it goes on to say, you know, those who who object to uh, the West and believe that the West is out to get the Muslim world, um, uh, you know, those in themselves are not uh, terroristic values, right? They are uh, they are political as well as Islamic opinions. I mean, the caliphate and and um, you know um, maybe some Muslim positions will, will be um, will, would have a, a very strong view that Sharia law should be applied in Muslim countries. Um, you know, t- to what extent is prevent? really part of a greater agenda to police even our thoughts and our ideas and what we believe are sacred to the Islamic uh, tradition? Well, look, that, that's very important. But the first part I'll, I'll say this, this much is that um, despite PREVENT being in law since 2015, numerous terrorism attacks have taken place in Britain, which means that PREVENT has failed. It, 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 it never stopped any of those. In, st- in fact, in some cases, like Salman Abidi, um, I, I believe the, the Manchester Arena bomber, he was reported to the police by and prevent by by his own community, and nothing happened. So these these are failures because the purpose of prevent is to stop violent extremism. It isn't to police thought, and that's where you're coming from now because this is now really about normative Islamic beliefs. Do Muslims believe in the Khilafah? Of course you do. If any, anybody who doesn't believe in the Khilafah, at least the Khilafah of the first uh, rightly guided caliphs, cannot be a Muslim. Um, but does this issue? Uh, exist today? Are there people who call for it? Of course there are. Is it been sullied by organizations like Islamic State? Yes, it has. Um, but that doesn't di- remove the idea that this is a valid Islamic discussion. There's something even more detailed than that. Something even more frightening to people is the concept of jihad. Um, that jihad has been seen and now has been uh, uh, equated by the right-wing press and some in the left as well um, as uh, being equated to terrorism. But as a Muslim, you know, when you read the Quran and you read the prophetic traditions and the Sunnah and you see what's written about jihad being a noble cause in the defense of the oppressed and so forth, uh, it's something noble that will remain until the day of judgment. Yet now you have been forced to, uh, because of the conversation, an ignorant person who lives in wherever it is, uh, who can barely speak, uh, string two sentences together, can shut you down by saying you are a jihadist. Even though you may have studied Islam and learned about Islam, and, and have complete understanding, he can shut you down just with that one word, because that word has been taken and bastardized, excuse my language, um, uh, so that you as a Muslim can't even feel comfortable in its use. And we need to throw this back uh, at the West and those who within the West, not all of them, um, have tried to do this because we know repeatedly throughout history, the West has supported jihad whenever it suited its purposes. They supported uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, they support. They they had fatwas of jihad issued for people to go Muslims to go from the Indian subcontinent to fight in the First World War against the Germans. Uh, the British uh, under Palmerston and before him uh, supported the Ottoman Caliphate in fighting against Tsarist Russia in the Crimea. 
historically speaking, and even recently, the British government sent aerial bombardment uh, under the RAF in uh, support of the Libyan Islamic fighting group that was fighting Gaddafi. Uh, so they will support jihad whenever it suits them. They'll support every aspect of Sharia whenever it suits them. They'll support Islamic banking, though they'll, and in the same, same sentence, they'll say, we think Sharia is barbaric. So we need to call them out for the hypocrisy and the double standards on this and not allow them to dominate our narrative. But do you think they've been successful? I mean, um, many mosques today will, will shy away from speaking about those concepts that you've uh, just outlined. Uh, Islamic societies, as I mentioned previously, you know, they, uh, they tend to stay away from very controversial subjects, whether political or ideological. Uh, and in the Muslim community in general, you just you, you feel that uh, Muslims are self-censoring and I, I have decided that in order to, to not fall foul of laws like prevent, they would rather uh, communicate in a, in a way uh, and, and refrain from speaking about subjects that may, uh, may be a problem from, from a state perspective. So ha- has prevent, if not um, maybe on a, on a measurable level, it hasn't been successful from a, from a counter-terrorism perspective or preventing violent extremism, but from a perspective of policing the ideas and the opinions of the Muslim community, it's been extremely successful. Uh, yes, if that was the intention, then it has been. But they've obviously they said that the intention behind prevent us be clear is to stop violence, political, I mean, sort of, uh, um, extremist violence in Britain. We all agree with that. There's not a soul that doesn't agree with that. But that's not what they're doing. And that's not what they are designed to do. And so this is the problem. Uh, if it was if they just said prevent was about only stopping violent extremism, I'd be the first one on its case and say, I am with you. The problem is that they are not doing that. And in fact, the majority of cases, when they speak about, um, as I said, Prevent hasn't stopped any of these attacks that have happened in this country. And what they have done is self-censured people who are already terrified. Islamophobia uh, had passed the dinner table test, according to Baroness Wallace, who was part of the, um, uh, you know, the Conservative Party at the time. And that was 2013, before Prevent even came into, in, into law. Uh, Muslims were already self-censoring. The Islamic societies were already scared. Um, they were already on the back foot. I've spoken at Islamic societies in places where they've had to go through lo- hoops and hurdles and still not be able to get me, uh, whereas I spoke in the same university in the same month under, uh, as an invitee of the Amnesty Society. So uh, speaking on exactly the same subject. So there you can see that is a, a, the, the Islamic societies, those who do try, have... Um, have have had to go through a great deal of difficulty because the scrutiny they're under is not the same scrutiny scrutiny as other societies are. So that in itself is Islamophobic. And um, uh, the other thing to answer to your question is, 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 has this worked? Yes, it has. And unfortunately, one of the things that I believe um, that is prevalent amongst the larger number of uh, organizations and groups in this country is cowardice. I'd have to say it as straight as that, um, that cowardice is prevalent. And if you want a movement in your community that stands up for principles, it's going to have to be prepared for sacrifice. That's something that we've learned from every civil rights movement in the United States of America, uh, South Africa, or anywhere else where there have been injustices, that you stand up to them and you will have to pay a price of sorts, well, it's, whether it's your face in the newspapers, whether it's them closing your accounts, whether it's them stopping at airports or whatever it is, um, you have to be prepared for that. That's what happens in the face of injustice. 
I suppose the, the argument to that is, I mean, you often speak to, uh, I often speak to Muslims uh, who belong to mosques and Muslims who belong to Islamic schools, and, and their argument is, well, if we don't uh, participate with these uh, with these anti-terror laws, and, and if we don't at least play along and, and you know, it, to some degree self-censor, um, the greater harm will be that our mosques will be closed down and our charity institutions will be under under scrutiny and and our bank accounts will be frozen and our schools will be will be uh, wound down as you've seen right there have been a number of schools in in the last 10 years that that have um closed for all sorts of very spurious reasons um i mean do you understand you know, at least or have some sympathy with that argument that you know in order to in order to survive in the long term, and, and maybe that's how some see it, one needs to make some compromises. I think history bears witness to, to, to those who stood up, who, who stood up and, and uh, inspired generations. Nobody remembers those who capitulated ever. No, nobody ever remembers the guys who gave up, the guys who um, floundered, the guys whose uh, feet shook and they, they, they wavered and then they turned back. Uh, none of those are inspiration for us. In fact, if anything, if we if we were going to talk about future generations actually being confident about themselves and who they are, um, then in the long term, that type of uh, decision making process is going to be deeply damaging for these for the, for our youth. They're going to look back and say if, if they if they think that this is the way forward, um, that you literally separate and uh, disassociate from any thing that sort of rocks the political boat and it comes to Muslims, um, then what you'll have is division. And if there's one thing that we should have learned as a majority of, of, of uh, Muslims in this country are originally from the Indian subcontinent, is that what kind of resistance did we have? What type of resistance was there to colonial domination for 300 years? There hardly was any other than in the Northwest Frontier province. Uh, there was hardly any. The only thing that really came afterwards was a half-naked fakir called um, Mohandas K. Gandhi, who started a non-violent resistant movement against occupiers. And unfortunately, I think we have, we, we are still, we're descendants of those people. We we haven't lost the mentality um, that allows for that division to be sown by a government that is uh, very good at doing it. And by saying that you are the good Muslim, you are the bad Muslim, you are the traditionalist, you are the Salafi, you are the jihadi, you are the moderate, you are the Sufi. Um, and, and once they do that, uh, you have what you see, a disunited community that has no leadership, no direction, is happy with praying in the mosques, but not happy with standing up for the justice and the protection of its own community. And that is a major problem. It's a problem of foresight. Can I ask about oversight mechanisms? I mean, this country argues or, or likes to characterise itself internationally as a, a mature liberal democracy. And and at least on face value, there are uh, counterbalances to uh, government power. I mean, you know, when it comes to counterterrorism laws, there's the Intelligence and Security Committee in the House of Commons uh, and other select committees that look at um, ter- bits of terrorism legislation. You've got the Office of the Independent Reviewer of Terrorism. And, uh, and of course, you've got judges and the judiciary. I mean, to what extent should we trust these institutions to counterbalance against uh, government power? Well, you know, I've engaged with all of them. Everyone that you've mentioned, I've engaged with all of them quite extensively in some cases. And, you know, on the face of it, it seems like, you know, if you compare to some of the stuff we have at the moment in the Islamic world, then 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 these these mechanisms seem very good. They seem uh, as if, 
you know, that these are the, the checks and balances to, to unrestrained power. Um, I, I don't want to judge it compared to them. I want to judge it compared to what I know to be the principles of justice I've known and learned in this country. Uh, when I've engaged with uh, the Intelligence Security Committee here, uh, you know, Dominic Grieve was the head at the time and uh, a decent man, individual who, who's trying to uh, look at the role of British government, for example, in torture. So we gave evidence to that of Britain's involvement in torture and complicity in torture against Muslims before 9-11. Stuff that led up to 9-11, but before 9-11. So we wanted to say that this isn't just a, a, a knee-jerk reaction of Britain being forced to be involved and complicit in terrorism in, in torture. Uh, they were doing it before it ever happened. And uh, uh, just like the United States of America, they did a Senate report on torture uh, that showed that America had, had tortured at least 119, but I, I, I believe it's more than like, more like 100,000 and 119. But let's just say they admitted it to 119 cases where they waterboarded, electrocuted, and outsourced people to, uh, to be tortured in, in different countries like uh, Morocco and Libya and Egypt and so forth. Britain, we gave a dossier to the British, to the Intelligence Security Committee here, exactly the same thing, in addition to also giving the details of our own cases. And they looked at it, and they detailed it, and they spoke of it, and they accepted that torture was taking place. But nothing became of it, meaning torture is a crime in the context of war. It's a war crime. False imprisonment is a crime in the context of, of war. It's a war crime, and abduction, kidnapping, all of those things. Um, nobody, there was not even a suggestion that anybody would be prosecuted for these war crimes. Uh, it was simply, we're, we've learned lessons, and we'll move on, and that's it. We're going to shut the case down. I've had that with police investigations. Can you imagine? I've given evidence to the police for MI5's role in torture. They've investigated, come back and said, we can't continue this investigation because they failed to cooperate. Imagine what would happen if you committed a crime and you failed to cooperate with the police. What would happen to you? Um, uh, we've given evidence at every level you can imagine uh, and come back again with this same thing. When it comes to accountability in this manner about torture, there was only one case in which you even just got an apology, and that was Theresa May issued an apology to Abdul Hakim Bil Hajj, who was a, a Libyan dissident who was renditioned um, uh, to the by the British to the Gaddafi regime. So there's all of your, um, you know, do they work with Gaddafi or not? Behind the scenes, they were working with every despot, and that evidence came to the fore because Libyan fighters, um, Mujahideen stormed the offices of the Mukhabarat of the uh, in secret police of uh, the Libyan headquarters and found therein documents uh, between the Libyan uh, Mukhabarat, the intelligence services, and MI6, congratulating them uh, on, on the sending of this individual. And because those documents were in the hands of uh, the lawyers for, for, for uh, Abdul Hakim, they couldn't hide them the way they'd hidden them in, in our case and redact details. So because of that, Theresa May was forced to give an apology. But in every other case, they have hidden behind the cloak of national security and simply failed to ever prosecute. And even in that case, they prosecuted nobody. So they are above the law. Now, there's a lot of positive things to say about the Muslim community and how we've responded to uh, these anti-terror laws. Uh, but you also mentioned that uh, some, as some parts of our community suffer from cowardice. I mean, how would you uh, understand or assess the Muslims who uh, belong to organizations and, and institutions who don't only uh, stay silent and, 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 as you said, suffer from cowardice, but uh, they actively participate with uh, 
government programs and and endorse these programs and I mean, firstly, from your experience, how widespread is that? And and secondly, how do we respond to it? Well, one thing I would say here, especially in Britain, um, our community has been strong. The various uh, our community um, in terms of those who've understood at least about prevent has become stronger and stronger. Uh, so we have media organisations, we have civil um, society organisations, campaign groups and so forth who, who recognise this. Uh, but far beyond that, there are uh, academics and there are lawyers and there are student movements and so forth who also recognize very clear. In fact, as I said, prevent, for example, has become so deeply unpopular amongst the Muslim community that nobody can hold their head up and actually say that I support it without getting shut down. Uh, uh, or, or essentially, you know, if you've made yourself clearly an, a, a proponent and supporter of prevent, then you're in a different camp. Uh, now, we can agree with, as I said, those who actually believe, and this is around, you know, a lot of the discussion has been around ISIS, and I don't think there's a soul that you can come across um, that actually supports ISIS uh, at all without them being very, known very easily and, and um, outed by the community. But we know that this isn't about that. As I said, this happened, these laws, or many of these laws were being passed well before ISIS came into, in, into the picture. Uh, but any, any imam, any community leader, any mosque uh, who, on the one hand, you can say that they're scared, but they're not endorsing these things openly. They're just saying we're acting out of fear. Fair enough that you're afraid, as I said, cowardice is prevalent. When you're actually actively involved in this and are promoting it and presenting it as part of the solution, um, then there's a major, major problem. And I'd like to say that you don't have to have studied a great deal of Islam um, to know uh, and recognize that when you see it. And that's why, as I said to you, the litmus test will be some of these uneducated but street smart youth on the, uh, who, who, who will see it clearly. Our imam is endorsing the police to come and spy on people. Our imam is endorsing uh, the army to come and recruit uh, from our mosque. I mean, how ridiculous is that? You never hear of uh, police and army recruitment happening at a church or at a gurdwara or, or at, a, at a mandir. You, have, you, have, you hear it happening at the mosque so much that it's embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. And uh, as I said, uh, all of that, in the long term, it turns people away from these institutions. It actually makes them go to places where they probably will get radicalized, i.e. the dark net of the inter internet, where people will tell them to do all sorts of ridiculous things. So this is the, nat the nature of when you shut down a space for, for healthy debate and discussion, uh, and the mosques are not that place anymore, then don't be surprised if people seek it elsewhere. Brother Mazen Beg, Jazakallah Khair, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help you and your, your organization, Cage. If uh, if uh, some of our listeners would you. like to uh, contribute to your work and, and get involved, how would they do so? Uh, alhamdulillah, we have a, a, a marvelous um, system of volunteers. We have a program, a curriculum, where we um, help people learn about how to get involved, in, not only in, in Cage's work, but also to get a wider view of why we think the way we do. Um, so you can contact, obviously go to the website, uh, um, cage.ngo, it's a very simple one, cage, C-A-G-E.ngo, or email contact at cage.ngo. And alhamdulillah, we have a team of marvelous brothers and sisters from all around the world um, who, who are deeply dedicated and been working on these issues for a, a long time. I'm the, as it were, the, the outreach director and spokesman, I do the most talking, but these guys do the most work. Um, so you will get from them the details and the uh, uh, the understanding of, of what we've been doing for the past 
you know, almost 17 years now. Barakalafik. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help you and, and make your activities strong, I mean, inshallah. I mean, and, and jazakallah khair for having me, inshallah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.